so there are a lot of different ways that you'll hear the Dharma discussed. A lot of different teachings um, that have come down to us over the ages. Uh, most of them supposedly from the Buddha. And I say supposedly because his was a, um, an oral tradition. And the, the teachings didn't start getting written down for a thousand years. So it was passed down, and you know, we've all played the telephone game, right? Where you know, where you start on one line, on one end, telling somebody something, and by the time it gets to the end of the line, mm, may or may not resemble what the first person said, right? Because everybody has their perceptions and their ideas. So, but the body of teachings um, that we have are from. Uh, what's called the Pali Canon, and in this tradition, that's the, those are the texts that we use. And they're allegedly the original teachings of the Buddha. And the way those, um, the oral tradition uh, was maintained was by recitation, and much of the time by lists. So you'll, you'll know that, if, and many of you who've been around for a while know that you know, that's how the teachings get taught, by certain lists. So there are the Four Noble Truths and the Five Hindrances and the Six Sense Bases and the Seven Factors of Awakening and the Eightfold Path and the uh, Ten Paramis. You get the idea. And uh, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And uh, Essentially, all of those teachings are um, elucidations or more detailed and deepening ways of discussing a central uh, understanding or a central message. And that is the, the Four Noble Truths are essentially the teaching that the Buddha gave right after his enlightenment and his 45 years of teaching are all um, basically expressions and elucidations and deepening detail of those Four Noble Truths, which are essentially that there is suffering or there's unsatisfactoriness or difficulty in life. Anybody disagree with that? Mm. And the second is that there's a cause, and that cause is... Um, the mind that clings, the mind that wants things to be as it wants it to be and not any other way. So it clings to things that are changing because it likes them or it resists things that, are, that it doesn't like and pushes them away. And so we're constantly in struggle and that's what causes the uh, suffering. So those are the first two and then the third and the fourth that uh, the suffering can cease because there's the fourth truth, which is that there's a way to the cessation of uh, suffering. So today I'm not going to talk about the Four Noble Truths, but I wanted you to know that that's the central teaching. But I'm going to talk about what's called a teaching called the Three Pillars of Dharma. And these three pillars of Dharma essentially follow it, there, it's like a pith teaching of the, ascent, the essence of uh, the Buddha's teachings because it essentially directs us 
to uh, three ways in which we can meet the Four Noble Truths. We can come to the Four Noble Truths, which is the full blossoming and full, the full blossoming of cessation of suffering. So these three pillars of Dharma are um, dana, sila, and uh, samadhi. Those are Pali words for giving or generosity. Sila, which is ethics or morality or integrity. And samadhi, which is meditation, or more precisely, it's concentration. But I prefer to use the word uh, meditation because we sometimes um, confuse concentration with meditation, thinking that concentration is the whole goal of meditation, when in fact, uh, the goal of meditation, is this better? Can you hear me better or worse? Somebody's shaking their head. That's good. You, you need it up? No. no. Somebody is saying she needs it up. Just a little bit. Yeah, a few people are saying they need it up. It might be, is it the... Uh, And how's this now? Is this better? Gotcha. Yes? Yes. Okay, great. You're welcome. It's awful to be sitting here with somebody moving their mouth and not be able to hear what they say. Um, so, um, dana, sila, and samadhi, generosity, integrity, and meditation. So I was saying that I like to use meditation rather than concentration so we don't become confused that that concentrated state of mind, which you, you can taste even in the beginning of meditation, but as we meditate deep, more and more deeply, the, the mind really becomes still and becomes um, connected to the object and in that way becomes uh, concentrated. That's the beginning of meditation. Because what we then do is we use that concentrated mind to um, to have insight, insight into the nature of life, which is uh, the very basis for this ending of suffering. So, um, uh, dana, sila, and samadhi. But I'm going to um, I'm going to substitute the word samadhi with the word bhavana, and bhavana means to cultivate, to bring out. Because again, I think all of these three teachings, dana, sila, and bhavana, are active. They're not passive. They're ways of our practicing. They're suggestions for how we can practice to um, get on this eightfold path, this fourfold, this fourth noble truth, the eightfold path to the end of suffering. So, we come to practice out of a sense of separation, out of uh, the suffering that we feel in life, and basically to have reliable happiness. We, know, we may notice that even when we are a little bit happy or happiness comes that it's fleeting or, and doesn't feel reliable. And we'll talk about that in, in a few minutes. And all of these, the sense of separation, 
this uh, suffering and this lack of reliable happiness are in some sense a lack of love. It comes down to that, either in our own inability to give love or to receive it. But I think that that's because we have a very limited idea of love. We use the word love in very common ways. I love ice cream. I love that dress. I love how she did that. Oh, I love that. Oh, those shoes are great. I love those shoes. Right. And so in a way, it's become a quite um, common uh, concept or idea. But we can aim much further in our love, in our um, quest for love, in our um, understanding of love. And that is to realize unconditional love, unconditional peace, unshakable happiness, and the sure heart's release. So in a discourse, the Buddha said, and this, this discourse is called the simile of the heartwood, unshakable deliverance of mind is the goal of the holy life, the sure heart's release, its heartwood, and its end. So just to keep that in mind, that when we are, whatever we're talking about in terms of practice, that's, what we're, that's where we're headed. And there are these three practices that I just introduced of dana, sila, and bhavana support this profound trajectory of liberation, the sure heart's release. And they're called the pillars of dharma. So uh, at one point, the Buddha was in the forest with his monks, and he picked up a handful of leaves, and he said, um, which is more monks, the leaves in my hand or all the leaves in the forest? And they said, of course, uh, the leaves in the forest. And he said, this is what the knowledge of the fully awakened one is like, the leaves in the forest. And so although we can't know all that the Buddha knew, at least for now, we can understand the essence of what he taught. And what he taught rests on these three pillars, the, these practices that take effort, patience, kindness, compassion, and this unconditional love for ourselves to begin with, and then also for others. So we include all beings in our heart of love. So dana, dana is about sharing our lives with others. So when we think about giving, we think about I give something to you, this is mine, and I give it to you. But actually, the act of dana is an act of mutuality. It's an act of it's a communal act that has deep within it the recognition that we are not separate. The recognition 
that we're all in the shared human life. And that our act of giving could not bear fruit without the recipient. And of course, the recipient doesn't even have to know we're giving, right? Or who we are that's giving. But yet that satisfaction that we get from giving is a heart satisfaction that knows that we're benefiting someone else. And so who we are becomes larger. Because it's not just me, this soul kind of uh, unit in this hostile or strange world out there. But in a way, the giving becomes something where we understand our interdependence, our knowing of each other. And there is a genuine uh, wish to support, to love, to share. And so we give in love, and it becomes a letting go, a letting go of our uh, self-centeredness, a letting go of our fear of lack, and a letting go of our idea of separation. So Donna gives us this practice of opening the heart and connecting us to others in the tapestry of life. And in every act of dana, in every act of giving, there are the four Brahma-viharas, divine abodes, loving kindness, compassion, joy for the joy of others, and equanimity. Equanimity of knowing that everything is temporary, that we own nothing in this world. It's all for rent. This body is for rent. The money in the bank is for rent. Our children are for rent. Everything is for rent. And Donna helps us because the qualities of an open heart and of loving, that loving connection, produces well-being. We feel the intrinsic goodness about ourselves, and we're not plagued by unworthiness. It's a circle, giving, because what comes back to us is not only gratitude, but the goodness within us. And we're not dwelling in this idea of scarcity or actual scarcity, but in the understanding of the abundance of the universe. And it inspires richness in ourselves rather than poverty in our hearts. It's a moment of relinquishment. And what's beautiful about Dana is that the Buddha would never teach anyone who is not who had not yet acknowledged him as a teacher, he wouldn't teach them meditation, he wouldn't give them teachings, he wouldn't do anything with them until he felt that they had absorbed his teaching of generosity, of giving. Because he felt that if the student had not understood all of these aspects of giving, 
that they would not be able to understand the teachings because their hearts would not be open. So it's something that I think about often, I reflect on often, that this generosity where we think we're giving something away, we're really getting a lot more in return. So it's a moment of relinquishment in which the practice of letting go and non-clinging, and remember what we said about clinging, that that is the second noble truth, that the cause of suffering is clinging to an idea or clinging to things. So this clinging, especially to our views, the need to be right, our habit patterns, our greed, hatred, and delusion, all of these are that second noble truth, the cause of suffering. So cultivation of non-clinging leads us to letting go into the unconditioned. Generosity brightens the mind. And what I recommend to you is that in any moment of generosity, whether it's money or service or time or just simply pausing and stopping to listen to someone fully and clearly and openly, to really pay attention in that moment. Because we, nat we naturally give though. If, you know, if our child tugs on our skirt and says, listen to me, mommy or daddy, and we stop, it's a moment of generosity and it's a natural moment. It's not that you have to say, oh yes, I should be generous, let me stop and talk and listen to this child to pay attention to that moment of natural generosity because that's the feeling one gets in giving. So we can start anywhere with generosity. Just to start, just as we do with meditation, we start small and we open up the awareness into a larger and larger field in the same way we can train ourselves in generosity, we can train the heart to switch from that place of clinging and wanting more and being separate to respond in, in a generous way. And then there's sila, which sets the stage for not being anxious and bringing a steady heart and happiness. The first step of the Eightfold Path that I referred to is an aspiration of non-harming. An intention, a wise intention to not harm and to be kind and loving. And what we give with this, back to generosity, is a gift of fearlessness. That when we are impeccable in our morality, in our sila, in our ethics, in our integrity, we, we give a gift of fearlessness to every single being with whom we come into contact. It's how to bring loving kindness and compassion into all of our relationships because all beings want to be happy. And in this intention, we respect the wish of all beings to be happy. And this understanding and the execution of the understanding, make profound harmony within ourselves. We live with less remorse and with no guilt. 
because we harm the world with greed, hatred, and delusion. But we harm ourselves first, because remember, if we're connected, it's not like we can harm the world and it doesn't affect us. So we, we train ourselves with non-harming in our own hearts. The Dalai Lama was asked whether he ever had afflictive emotions, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion. And he said, yes, but they no longer fool me. Right? I wonder what he meant by that. I think what he meant was that he no longer thinks that's who he has to be. That even though they arise in the mind stream, that that's not what needs to direct him. So we learn when afflictive emotions come up in pure heart, we see it clearly and we're not fooled or carried away by it. So the inner world relaxes. It makes it much easier to practice when we have these inner conditions. So dana and sila are the foundations for the bringing forth of meditation, the meditative, calm, relaxed, peaceful heart. And why is that? Because it's hard to have a good day of meditation after a good day of killing, or lying, or stealing. So we see the good. It becomes the proximate cause, and metta arises, or the thought that all beings want to be happy gives rise to metta in our own minds. And it's the proximate cause for concentration to arise. It's not a kind of ferocious expulsion of what's in our minds, of what we don't want to see or think. And I think that's what the Dalai Lama meant. So this um, sila, which you may already know if you've been practicing for a while, for lay people consists of five understandings of what brings happiness. And the first is not to harm any living being. And sometimes you'll see that as not to kill. So we don't kill mosquitoes. We don't kill anything. And I want you to know that all of these um, precepts are very deep when we practice we see all kinds of ways in which we come up against them. You know, so if you have cockroaches in your kitchen and you're a, in a restaurant, what do you do, right? Do you say, well, I'm a Buddhist, I can't run this restaurant anymore, and leave it to the cockroaches? Or do you do something else? So there are, or abortion, right? What's that? What's that about? What's right? So you'll see that all of these precepts, we're not going to go into it, them today, but I'm going to tell you what they are. And then when you start practicing with them, you, you will know that they are complex. They're not simple. So there's not killing. And then there's not taking what is not offered, meaning that we don't steal other people's things. And of course, that can go much deeper into wanting other people's things. Right? Where does the precept begin? 
does it begin when that desire arises? Oh, that's a beautiful watch, or it's a beautiful house, or a beautiful whatever, object. How do you work with that when the desire for somebody else's stuff comes up? And then, of course, what's really proscribed is not taking, not actually taking it. And the third is telling the truth and being gentle in speech. So if a murderer comes along and says, where did my intended victim go when you saw the intended victim? Do you tell the murderer the truth? Right? So these are not um, these are not simple kind of commandments that but ways of reflecting and of becoming impeccable in our conduct and behavior. So we tell the truth and we uh, don't speak harshly, but we speak gently and kindly. And the fourth is to not use sexuality for um, harm. So there are obvious things like adultery and rape. But what about being promiscuous? Does that harm? So you reflect. And then the fifth is uh, to not use alcohol or um, recreational drugs that dull the mind. So again, is a glass of wine okay, but not five? Where's the line? So these uh, precepts give us the potential for greater happiness. And of course, we can concentrate. Not dull concentration, but one that's connected. And the horizons of our spiritual life become not just a room like this or when you sit in meditation, but it takes us out into life as a bridge. And then there's bhavana, to bring forth what is not yet developed. And it's a recognition that mental development is not about acquiring knowledge, but strengthening the qualities of mind and heart that liberate, that liberate us from defilements and brings us into harmony with our natural love. So as I said in the beginning, concentration and vipassana, which is the meditation that we practice, are two different practices. So the concentration is the practice of um, taking an object as our object of awareness and anchoring the mind around it, as we did this morning, and allowing whatever else is happening in the, um, in the six senses to be in the background. And we train the mind to come back over and over and over again to the present moment. And of course, what we recognize when we're doing that is how crazy the mind is. I mean, there's no way that's what it wants to do, right? It wants to jump here, it wants to jump there, it wants to speculate about what might happen in the future, it wants to remember all of the good things that happened, or sometimes for some of us, all the bad things that happened. 
and it um, brings a steadiness to the mind. It brings a way of concentration. And what happens when the mind is jumping all over the place is it's impossible for it to have insight because it's not steady. So what it's seeing, it's seeing through different veils of perception and conception and habits of mind and our conditioning and all kinds of ways in which the mind has been vibrating and resonating with all of these habits that we've built up over the years. Concentration begins to strip away all of that um, unsteadiness and the mind becomes deeper and more settled and at rest. And of course there's the teaching of jhanas and um, which are really deep states of concentration. They're, jhanas are literally translated as absorptions, deep states of being absorbed in the object. And uh, there's even a systematic um, teaching on jhanas that we can actually go through eight levels of absorption, but we won't talk about that today. But what we use this concentrated and still and deep and settled mind for, this clear, peaceful heart, is to see into the nature of things deeply and to understand them deeply. So in, um, so concentration comes from the breath, being present to the breath over and over and over and over again. Or we can take a mantra, or what's called the Brahma Viharas, uh, loving kindness, where we have particular phrases that we keep repeating over and over, and the mind gets absorbed in those phrases. And thoughts are ignored, right? They come up, but we ignore them. We let them go. And the field of the mind gets so energized that the mind gets absolutely absorbed on the object or sound. And what happens with concentration is we get um, protected from what we call the five hindrances of meditation. And some of you may have experienced it today. Sleepiness is one. Anybody experience sleepiness? Yeah. Restlessness, where the mind gets restless and worries. And this is what these, the precepts are pointing us to. Because a lot of the time when we start to meditate, all the stuff that we did that we regret starts to come up. So the mind can get either sleepy or restless. Or desire comes up. Oh, I'd love to have an ice cream right now. Or I should call my friend. I haven't spoken to my friend in a while. Right? And before we know it, we've jumped up and we've made the phone call or we've run down the street for the ice cream. Desire. And, or aversion. We don't like the boredom in our meditation. Or we don't like the fact that the church bells are ringing. Or the air conditioning is too loud. Or it's too hot. Or it's too cold or it's too long, or it's too short. All kinds of ways in which we want something to be other than the way it is. And this aversion 
manifests either as anger, outwardly, it explodes outwardly, or it implodes as fear. And then there's uh, doubt. Oh, everybody else looks like they're doing it really well, but not me. I'm not really cut out for this. I'm really an active type. I should go run or do this or do that or do some yoga, but you know, is yoga the same as meditation? I'm so much better at yoga than I am at meditation. Or what's she talking about? Who is this woman up here? She hasn't I don't even know who she is. Maybe she's really just a fraud. She's just after my money. So these voices of doubt arise when the mind is shaking, when it's not still. And concentration, temporarily, because concentration is a temporary state, um, protects us from these five hindrances. So the energy of mind, when it's uplifted, overcomes sloth and torpor or sleepiness. Clear perception and confidence arises and doubt is overcome or joy naturally arises in the mind and aversion is overcome and when there's no aversion the body and mind feel comfortable so there's no restlessness and when the mind feels settled not needing to go anywhere desire is overcome because there's a feeling of lightness in the body and the mind and so we need nothing to complete us But wisdom comes through vipassana, or seeing clearly things as they really are. Mindfulness, this vipassana practice, which goes beyond concentration, takes the predominant shape, the predominant object, without the mind taking the shape of what it's watching or being with. So we can see restlessness without being restless. We can see uh, aversion without being the person who is averse. We can see desire and know it for what it is and understand it clearly and deeply without getting lost in the object of our desire. So vipassana takes the object, so if desire arises, oh, this is desire. So instead of being caught by whatever it is we want, we begin to become really familiar with the movement of desire in the body, the mind, and the heart. So we see how it comes and goes. We see it's impermanent. We see that we don't have to take on this desire as me, and that we can actually watch its natural journey of coming and going without having to satisfy it, or without becoming it. And we also notice the suffering of desire. Because what does desire really want? It doesn't really want the object. What it wants is to extinguish this feeling of lack, 
That's what's uncomfortable in desire. And so when we get what we think we want, we're really happy. I got the job. I got the apartment. I got the relationship. Well, you know, as you know, that's just the beginning of the problem, right? right? The job, the relationship, the apartment. Right now you gotta pay for the apartment. Now you gotta relate to this person. And now you gotta deal with your boss, right? So it's not really the job or the relationship or the apartment, but it's this feeling of, oh, relief, that what I wanted, this wanting, is now no longer there. So desire carries with itself its own destruction. It's desire for desire, desire for destruction of the desire. So that's just an example of seeing clearly through vipassana, taking this, cl this clear mind and looking at whatever is arising. And this goes for not just meditation, but what we call post-meditation, which is going out into the world and relating to others, where we can begin to be so aware with our minds concentrated in our hearts still that we begin to actually see through the veil of this life. The veil of our perception of what we think it's like and actually see what it's actually like. So we pick up all of these uh, characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and of not-self. So this is the path and it's a very short teaching on the path to cultivate this path through bhavana through meditation to remember always where freedom lies and that the freedom through mindfulness is becoming free from greed, hatred and delusion and when the mind attains these insights, we know there's nothing to be clung to. The mind leaps into the unconditioned because it has no other choice. And this is what happens naturally if we simply do the practice as it's prescribed. Dana, Sila, and Bhavana. Thank you. So we have a few moments, a few minutes for um, questions or comments. Um, the Noble Eightfold Path, the first one, wise action, right? Wise intention. Wise intention. Um, I heard she said that, like, um, when we act to harm or when we, for me, when I've even accidentally harmed, it does come back. Um, in some way, it, it's, okay. Um, the, wise, the wise action and the teaching not to harm, I really work on that a lot. Um, but there are times when, like you said, that if there is an intention to harm, that 
that I guess someone down the road will bear that seed and the current fruit will come to pass. Um, but I, one thing that I have difficulty with, like I do work really hard on, um, you know, trying not to harm. But then I find that when I'm in a situation when someone has an intention to harm me, seriously, I want to equalize that situation. And there are times when I've been really cool and I've diffused the situation, but there are times when I've not. And it's hard to, when someone's wanting to harm you, it's hard to just be loving and kind and stuff like that. And, and then if they do it repeatedly, it's kind of like they're a sucker, you know what I mean? So I'm wondering if you could speak to like how to have this, how to carry out in real life not harming, even in a situation when someone really wants to harm you. Hmm. So first of all, we don't need to stay with anybody who's harming us. Nobody said we needed to do that. Um, also, there's no um, intention not to harm is different than harming itself or the non-harming itself. So, you know, a lot of what happens is when, when we give these teachings, they're heard in an extreme way, okay? And it's not like we're leaving our common sense at the door and coming in and listening to teachings and saying, okay, I'm going to just do that and I'm not going to do anything else and, you know, I don't care if you beat me and, you know, I'm going to stay and I'm going to really have this intention not to harm. Although there is a sutta called the simile of the saw where the Buddha talks about, and I wish I had it here, but where the Buddha talks about, talks to his monks and he says, you know, so if somebody is cutting you up with a saw, right? He's taking you limb from limb from limb from limb. Will you, will you depart from your intention of loving, will you depart from your heart of loving kindness? I say, no, sir. No, sir. So having a heart of loving kindness doesn't mean that you're sitting and saying, bring it on. Right? Come on, saw the, saw the arm off. Yeah, yeah, I love you, I love you, I love you. No, that's not it. You do what, what is necessary to protect yourself to the extent that you can, because sometimes we can't. And, and we do, and even if we have to do something that's difficult, we still check our intention. So we do it with kindness, even if it's something that externally may look like it's not kindness. We're checking our intention all the time. What is my heart like? And it's a practice. So you'll find yourself falling into, I'm going to kill him. I, you know, whatever our intent, whatever our intention of non-loving kindness is, our intention of harm is. And then we check ourselves. Oh, is there a way I can work with this where I'm not harmed? Because we start loving kindness starts with ourselves where I'm not harmed, but where I'm not harming either. And nobody said it was easy, right? I didn't, 
mean to give that impression. As I said with the five precepts, every single one has a hook, an edge. And so it's meant to be difficult. It's not meant to be a piece of cake, because that's not our conditioning. Our conditioning is vengeance. Look at our culture. We have two and a half million people in incarcerated. Let's not even talk about the fact that 95% of them are people of color. Something's up with that, right? So we have a we have a we have a vengeful society that thinks that that's how you that's how you deal, right? So is it surprising that we pick it up in our own atmosphere if we're all connected? Then those ideas, those um, motivations are going to seep in. And the Buddha always said his teaching was against the stream. So we're not going with the group thing. We're not going with the, the values of the culture without questioning them. And we are um, keeping our own counsel in every, in every moment. That's why mindfulness as a practice is so valuable. Because when these um, habits of mind assert themselves, we've countered them with, a, with another habit of mind, which is to be aware of them. Most of the time, the, the mischief comes because we weren't aware of what arose in our own mind stream. And suddenly we're in the middle of an action and we, uh, how did I get here? Well, because we believed whatever the idea was that came up, that at the time it was a good idea. Because we didn't even notice that it was an idea. We just thought, this is me, this is right, and I'm doing it. I don't care who it hurts. Well, the practice is turning us away from that kind of automat automatic reaction and towards a genuine, kind, and tender responsiveness, even when things are difficult. As a matter of fact, it's even more important when they're difficult. So it's not like we're going to sit down and meditate for 15 minutes and everything is going to change. No, the world is still the world has been for billions of years, and it's, it's going to come at you. How do you respond? How do you respond? How do you respond? And so what's being asked of you is not to become some kind of limp piece of protoplasm that kind of sits there and just passively accepts whatever is given, but that's thoughtful and wise and clear, so that even if you having to do something difficult, you are very aware of how difficult it is for the other person. In my corporate life, I had to fire people. And it was hard. It was very hard. And yet, there was a way of speaking with them, of treating them, of being with them in that moment that could cushion it didn't stop me from firing them, because it's what I had to do. And so, you know, 
we do what we need to do, and if we're doing it with a kind and compassionate heart, it makes all the difference. Thank you. You're welcome. I have a question about, you talked about uh, desire of your play, and I was wondering um, about learning to differentiate uh, between desire and uh, having this progressive, proactive mind uh, mindset. For example, uh, desiring to, in my example, desiring the bachelor point to graduate school. And it's to work as a physical therapist. And the intention seems to me to be very uh, to be very clear to help and to work with people. So I'm wondering how do I settle that, that desire? How do you do what with the desire? How do I settle that desire while at the same time letting go of that? Letting go of the desire? Yeah, how do you... So you don't have to let go of the know, desire. I don't know what that is. <laughs> so, you know, desire, des you can have desire for wholesome things. And there, so there are two words in Pali. The problem with desire, talking about desire in English is there's only one word. So there's desire for wholesome things, and then there's desire for things. <laughs> right, so chanda is desire for the wholesome, and uh, tanha, and I love this because I think it's really helpful, is the, is the desire for things that are not so wholesome. And the, the literal translation of tanha is thirst. So it's a thirst that can't be slaked. So if we have, you know, if we have a desire for social justice, that's wonderful. It's nothing wrong. You don't have to let go of that desire. So now the work is, how do I accomplish that without burning myself out? or without, without harming a whole group of people in the process, right? Maybe not my, not my peeps, but somebody else's, right? So the desire for, um, to be of service, the desire to, um, to support yourself, the desire to, um, to use your talents, all are really wholesome desires. And if we understand the nature of desire, we also don't become so attached to it manifesting in a particular way that we start to suffer again, right? So this job is the one I have to have. And if I don't have it, I'm gonna be really unhappy. Right? That's a desire that's gonna lead to suffering. The desire for I want to be a physical therapist because I know I can do it. I know I have the talent for it. It's something that calls me. It will be helpful to so many people and I'll be able to support myself. Not a problem. So, so and then how do you pursue that desire? How do you, how do you pursue the realization of those intentions? 
that also will have something to do with your happiness or your suffering. Right? So, do you do it by cheating, stealing, and competing with every other physical therapist? That's going to make you unhappy. It's not like there's some, you know, karma out there that's going to impose something on you. It's the, whatever you water inside is going to bear, that's going to be your garden. Your garden is going to be either full of beautiful flowers because you've watered the intentions of loving kindness and compassion, or it's going to be full of weeds because you've watered the intentions of greed and aversion and delusion. It's, it's natural law. It's not, it's not something else happening. It's not some external force making something happen. But you can, you can look at your intentions and see if they're wholesome. And a lot, and I'm speaking very kind of black and white, but there's a lot of gray in there, right? So you could have a, a wholesome intention to be of service and be very greedy about how much you charge people. Kind of mixed. Or you could have an intention for service and charge people so little that you starve. That's kind of mixed. So we're, you know, so we're always looking for balance. Where's the balance? And how and how is my how is my practice manifesting in every single thing I do, say and think? Body, speech, and mind. Where our awareness becomes wide and large. So that brings us to the end of our morning. If we could just um, reflect on our practice today together and the uh, reflections that we've had together. Perhaps setting an intention for your own um, bhavana, your own cultivation of dana and sila and samadhi. Where are things weak in my own practice that need that I need to develop them further? Where are things strong? that I can really feel some confidence and some faith from the strength of what I have cultivated already. We're not all starting with, you know, from total zero or behind zero. We have goodness. We have kindness. We have compassion. We know these things already in our hearts. So perhaps even now reflect on something beautiful that you've done in your life, even if it was the smallest act of kindness. And go back to what that felt like. Perhaps you stopped and talked to somebody who was homeless. Or you rubbed your mom's foot when she was aching. Any, even the smallest thing. And know that's a kernel, that's, a, that's your um, beginning. 
That's the ground from which you're operating. And all of the other forces in your heart of greed or aversion or delusion can be worked with. We're not starting to get rid of them, we're just working with them, redirecting the energy. And contemplate the goodness that we have established today in these practices and reflections. And allow our goodness to cover the whole world. Dedicating this goodness to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. Sending loving kindness to each person here, wishing for the well-being, the peace and happiness, the safety, the health, and the ease of every being here. And letting that loving kindness radiate out into all directions, into every single corner of this beautiful and vast universe in which we live, encompassing all of the beings everywhere without exception. May all beings be safe from harm, happy and peaceful, healthy and strong, and live with ease. All beings in all of the eight directions and above and below. And if you'd like, you can say the name of any beings that you would like to particularly include in our loving kindness. Anastasia. Here. You can say it out loud or you can say it silently. And we bring them into the circle and wish for the healing of our whole world and for the earth itself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.